cultural history, politics and tat. Sort of like a cursed show and tell where every week we bring in an object that's weighed down with history. I'm historian and broadcaster Dr Kasha T and as ever I'm joined by my co-host. Hello I'm Dan Hancock's journalist and author. And today is a super special episode because we have a guest Jack Schenker has won a Cursed Objects Lifetime Achievement Award for Journalism. His interests range from the revolution in Egypt to the Corbyn movement over here and amazing reporting on grassroots activists and those marginalised from mainstream power. I personally became obsessed with Jack's work when I read The Egyptians, A Radical Story, which for my money is one of the best books about neoliberalism as a form of neocolonialism. It's really fucking brilliant. It's so, so, so good. Also, you did an amazing thing for Tortoise, which is like a deep dive into the Home Office, which was just phenomenal. Not somewhere you want to dive into at all, really, <laughs> let alone deeply. <laughs> but, but Jack went there. Yeah, went Jack there. went there. So Jack has an eye for the everyday. No political struggle is too small. No detail too insignificant. And we're really glad that you're here. Welcome. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me on. And thank you for that incredibly generous and lovely introduction. I, I feel like when it comes to professional validation, it's you and my mum doing all the <laughs> these days, honestly. Uh, so I'm really, really happy to be here. Honestly, like, yeah, I just can't. I cannot tell you how many people have been like, read the Egyptians, read it, read it, just read it. It's so good. It's so, so, so good. It's true. And my and my uh, my feelings about Jack's books are actually in print because I, well, I didn't know Jack so well, I hasten to add. <laughs> this is entirely a sort of yeah, yeah, just exculpatory democracy. If you are an Observer Books editor, just uh, just know that <laughs> as pally as we may sound on this recording, this has only happened since. Uh, but yeah, no, Jack's subsequent book, now that we have your attention, The New Politics of the People, is also fucking brilliant and captures a moment in time where it felt like uh, Britain's politics were changing for the better from the grassroots up. Um, how we feel now. <laughs> a moment in time that has been possibly slightly different. and grimly curtailed since. But still. <laughs> Which I think is an, an excellent way of introducing what you brought in today, actually, is it not? <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I'm holding in my hands um, a blue mug that is, you may be able to hear it snapped into several pieces. And it's got a noughts and crosses print on the side oh, wow. in which the noughts have been the victorious noughts have been replaced by a clenched fist symbol and that is the logo of an egyptian youth movement called sita abril uh, which is 6th of april the date in in arabic and it's got their now defunct website address um, at the bottom and 6th of april were an organization which was kind of anti-dictatorship we can get into the details later, but it played a role in trying to organise protests mm -hmm. in the dying days of the Mubarak regime mm -hmm. and also in the 2011 revolution. And it has since been outlawed as a banned organisation. This symbol is a prescribed terrorist symbol. The um, fists. The one. fists yeah. uh, symbol um, today in Egypt. And the first thing to say about this mug, just very briefly, is that it's a great mug it's a robust despite not with the fact that it's literally broken yeah. it's a robust mug it, it, it's thick and it's heavy and it's the kind of thing which if you're like me and you categorize your mug cupboard in sort of tiers yeah. of which mm. ones yeah. you reach for mm. this has a claim mm -hmm. to being kind of god's tier mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's just the right size it's like it's got the the heft as you say and the sturdiness and the sort of thick 
thickness all exactly. the way around of a coffee, a good coffee mug. I can't yeah. be doing with an elegant, slender yeah. no. mug. No bone no. china for your coffee. E- exactly. No, Outrageous. Um, <laughs> but it also, aside from just wanting to come on to praise yeah. the yeah, physical really qualities important. of the mug, really the handiwork, it, it also um, has a sort of huge array of um, very sort of messed up and contradictory and complex connotations for Mm. me Mm. in relation to the constantly shifting landscape of revolutionary and counter-revolutionary Egypt uh, and complex and contradictory and ever-changing dynamics of my own personal relationship to that Mm. country, Mm. which I um, love very deeply and called home for many years. And just very, very briefly, it's a really stark example for me of us fixed inanimate object or at least seemingly fixed and inanimate which actually acquires rapidly new meanings with Mm. political and historical and social change and not the kind of change that plays out over decades but certainly in the revolutionary context change that is happening kind of before your eyes day by day Mm. when the ground under your feet uh literally and metaphorically is disappearing it's being torn up by revolutionaries to hurl at security forces it's being torn up by the state to build barricades to stop revolutionary forces mobilizing um and this mug uh sitting quietly on the kitchen rack in my sort of downtown cairo apartment for years has uh kind of witnessed this all and Mm. represented many different things so it's it's truly cursed and i I have to admit reluctantly that for that reason, it probably is a better candidate for an object to bring on to this podcast than my 1994 fun facts, which was my <laughs> other suggestion. I will maintain that if other people if other people get to do really fun things like Jamie Oliver compilation albums or their own cat's claw, yeah. then the 1994 fun facts should have its day in the limelight. I agree. But that day will come. And it's not like, you know, it's not like that's necessarily a more light-hearted story. It might no. appear, you know, once you start digging into sort of the perils of the Thatcher Thatcherite kind of work. Oh out, yeah, and my start. initially unsuccessful application to be a member of the Newsround Press Pack. Um, <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get to, well, later season. Well, let's jump ahead from the Newsround Press Pack, but not by too much, to you arriving in Egypt. I'd love to know, um, and I think our listeners would too. Like, you know, what is the starting point of that extraordinary journey that you have gone on your relationship with both this object and with Egypt and with its its revolution? So I first um, moved to Egypt in 2008 and I travelled overland there from London via trains and motorbikes and hitchhiked lorries and uh, ferries across the Red Sea. I wanted to make a start in journalism. It's something I'd done at university and I wanted to base myself outside of the UK and Mm -hmm. learn a new language and immerse myself in a different society And I was really drawn to the Middle East, in part because I was already interested politically in Palestine and Palestinian Mm -hmm. solidarity. Mm -hmm. But there was there were a lot of journalists already based either in Israel or in Palestine and a lot of journalism being produced from that region, often Mm. very badly. But it Mm. was it was sort of overdetermined, but it was Mm. it it was very covered, whereas there was a whole other area of the Arab world in that time, a whole other fault line, which was essentially between Western-backed dictators Mm -hmm. and the populations that they ruled over. Mm. And that fault line really wasn't being explored by Mm. media in the global north. Cairo, which is known as Umidonia in Arabic, the mother of the world, you know, it's a city of 25 million people. Mm. There's more people in it than sort of three of the neighbouring countries combined. (laughs) It was was once the the centre of journalism in the Middle East. You know, every every major uh, Western media outlet would have a bureau there. But by the time I arrived, it was seen as a sort of journalistic backwater, a place where nothing of particular interest happened right. apart from dramas at the pyramids or the occasional <laughs> shark attack in the Red Sea, right. essentially tourism related stories. And actually, I sensed, although at this stage it was only very fuzzy outlines, that there were more interesting things going on below the surface. Um, and I guess I wanted to try and get my head around some of them and, and explore them. It's an interesting thought as well that, or rather a cursed kind of aspect of the way that Western media often covers, like does foreign reporting, mm. is that exactly as you described, that the 
you've got the shark attacks, you've got drama at the pyramids. Yeah. So it has to that that's all through a Western totally yeah, gaze, a lens. Right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, which which goes to a deeper dynamic of essentially Egyptian stories, by which I mean the stories of Egyptian people rather than Egyptian elites, never being told on their own mm. terms. And that's mm. something that actually came to define a lot of the Western media coverage of the revolution itself when mm. it broke out a few years later. Mm. But just as an example of the things that were being missed, you know, in the late 2000s in Egypt, a and this is related to the mug actually, there was a strike wave forming that some uh, historians went on to call the, the biggest peacetime mobilization of human beings in, wow. in, in the Middle East since the Second World War. Mm. So you had, you had hundreds of thousands of people on strike in a country where unsanctioned strikes were outlawed. There was, mm. as with many parts of the world, there was an official state-run trade union federation, which mm. was very pro-regime. But independent trade unions were, were outlawed. You know, this was a brutal authoritarian state that any sign of independent political organising was, was instantly kind of nipped in the bud, um, often very violently. And yet, despite this, at a time, I should add, of a kind of neoliberal makeover of the entire country, sponsored by the IMF and the World Bank and Egypt's Western allies, mm. including Britain, hundreds of thousands of workers were risking their lives to walk out to protest mm. um, in the streets. And I was, I, I went on to become the Guardian's correspondent in Egypt, but for the first couple of years, I was freelancing for different, largely British um, mm. media outlets. And I was constantly pitching to different editors stories about this strike wave. And it was only when the Egyptian state circus went on strike. And uh, no way, as in literally the circus, the circus, not like, <laughs> as in the <laughs> lion like, tamer, not like the phrase the media circus, no, 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 no. the actual circus, the big top, <gasps> the ringmaster. Wow. You know, it's only when the lion tamer and the acrobats and so on came out onto the street. And I tragic comic, really, I, isn't absolutely. it? It's like the only sort of workers that were interested in <laughs> and I, are ones exactly. breathing fire. <laughs> well, a, 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 an editor, an international editor, uh, then of a British, major British newspaper, who will remain unnamed for now. <laughs> I remember the immortal line down the phone uh, was, "Can we get a photo of a clown holding a placard?" <laughs> and I said, well, "Well, we can because there are literally clowns in the street holding a placard." And I said, "Great, great story." And I said, "Yeah, I mean, and you were trying to tell the rest of the story. story. It was like, yeah, yeah, I don't. As long as I've got the clown, exactly." <laughs> and that really, that really came to define so much of what I felt was wrong with the way that Egypt was understood and the lens mm. through which it was it was viewed by the Western media. And as I say, I think that really came to impact coverage of the revolution because mm -hmm. a lot of the discourse around Tahrir Square, around the 18 days of the anti-Mubarak uprising, which mm. listeners don't remember, um, started in January 2011 and involved incredibly dramatic and violent clashes between protesters and security forces and eventually the occupation of, of central Cairo, all played out on kind of live, live TV. Mm. And, Eventually, the army stepping in, forcing Hosni Mubarak, who had been president of Egypt for more than three decades. I mm. mean, you know, most Egyptians, because it's a population that skews very young, had lived their entire lives under this one president. He was eventually toppled and brought down. But a lot of the media discourse was, this has risen from nowhere. <laughs> a sleeping giant awakes. You know, oh these God. people so long used to political quietude and obedience have finally found it within themselves to, you know, rouse and rumble and uh, set the streets on fire. Jesus. And it was just bollocks. It was bollocks yeah. from start to finish. Mm. And one of the interesting things about the 6th of April movement was that... They were named after a particular date in 2008, so we're three years before the revolution here, where a general strike was being called in a town called Al Mahal Al Kubra in the Nile Delta. It's a textiles weaving town. It's got a huge, originally state run. It was partially privatized in the 1990s and 2000s, mm. like so many state enterprises. And, at, you know, one of these old school urban places that is entirely built around one industry, in this case kind of spinning and weaving, and has been a hotbed of labour radicalism ever since it was built in the 1920s. Mm. There was a huge strike called on the 6th of April 2008, and a group of actually quite urban, middle-class, Cairo and Alexandria-based activists who had been protesting for human rights, for democratic reforms, 
that strand was had been quite separate from the workers' movement, which tended to be more working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm. people who were kind of the middle class activists often spoke English, had access to international journalists. Many no. of the workers' movements kind of didn't. The 6th of April movement was an attempt to fuse these yeah. two uh-huh. um, protest strands together. And for that reason, the regime was absolutely terrified of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Paris 68 style. Exactly. Really. Yeah. Uh, and so that th- this happened really soon after I arrived in Cairo and started reporting. And on that day, in all the major cities of the country, it was complete lockdown. You know, armed personnel carriers on wow. the street, armed kind of soldiers and uh, security forces kind of on every corner in, in, in the centre. In Mahala, though, the people came out anyway. Right. And wow. uh, burned pictures of Hosni Mubarak, uh, which was wow. a complete taboo Mm -hmm. at the time we hadn't seen anything like that for for really for decades and hundreds were arrested several people were shot dead and so the 6th of april became a kind of a symbol of an aspiring kind of revolutionary movement that was very very in in inchoate but it was beginning to come together and and form what was it like not to i don't want to this whole conversation to focus too much as i'm sure you don't on centering your own experience, but I'm so interested in your own experience, which is partly me being a journalist, being a friend of yours, but um, and, and sort of hearing about the stuff that's sort of almost behind the scenes of the Egyptians, mm. the book, and your reporting for The Guardian. Like, I'm so moved How listening out of... to you. Yeah. It's crazy. It's just crazy. It must have been just so mad. Sorry, Dan, you were going to say No, no, I mean, I, I, you can answer the question, it must have been just so mad if you want, so I'm just teasing. But I, my question was going to be, you know, like, how... How out of your depth did you feel, if I, I may ask, in I, that moment where you're like, you know, particularly in terms of like reporting from a yeah. from a dictatorial state uh, where, you know, particular actions and activities are already being outlawed or groups being outlawed? I mean, incredibly out of my depth. And, and it's really important to acknowledge that. I arrived in Cairo and tried to build a journalism career with the idea that I was going to try and do things differently, that I wasn't going to fall into the trap that I described earlier of seeing Egypt as a country and individual Egyptians and communities within Egypt entirely through this kind of Western prism. Yeah. But of course, so, you know, I wasn't going to hang out uh, with the New York Times correspondent and the CNN correspondent in the diplomatic parties and, in mm. you know, the gardens of the American embassy and, and so on. I was going to make friends with a wide range of ordinary Egyptians and Mm. go and play football with them and go and smoke hash with them and get out of the capital and go to small villages Mm. and and go to factories and so on. But of course, uh, and I write this in my book, you know, we all live in green zones of our own creation Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and I was as guilty of that as anyone else. Um, You know, there was, it wasn't as if I was suddenly being able to bring this kind of objective lens on Egypt because... You know, it doesn't exist. Absolutely, yeah. no one has one. Someone's <laughs> uh, got access to you one. You know, all, all, all journalism is advocacy journalism. Some of it mm. acknowledges it that, and some of it doesn't. Amen. To um, and so, having kind of initially been charged with this sense of, I'm kind of in the streets and I'm doing things differently, and I'm telling a, a bottom-up kind of grassroots story. Um, I then found myself at times kind of finding that really difficult to navigate, realising mm. that, you know, there were dynamics here that were incredibly complex, that had long historical roots. I mean, roots going back, you know, not just to the beginning of the Mubarak era, going back to the beginnings of Egypt as an independent post-colonial mm-hmm. state in the 1950s, mm. and before that to uh, when, it was a, when it was a British colony. There were linguistic uh, nuances and social differences and geographical kind of contrast, mm. all of which, uh, you know, it's the more you know, the more you realise you don't, you don't know. know. Mm. Um, which must be true for all foreign correspondents, right? Like, absolutely. it's worth saying mm. at this point, like, that is yeah. the challenge and the obstacle and T- the... Totally. It's, it's un- unavoidable. Like, yeah. unless you're literally a native person and speaker of the country you are reporting like if i was reporting for a spanish mm-hmm. newspaper yeah. from london mm-hmm. that'd be very different though i'd also need to understand what the spanish it, cultural and social and political it, it's, a, it's right. an act of translation yeah and tra- exactly. a translation yeah. between cultures and indeed structures that are you know especially in terms of the structure of the media are inherently kind of problematic mm. um and that's what i was going to say before was that you know i acknowledge then as now that all of my work kind of built on the work of amazing kind of friends and colleagues, Egyptian friends mm. and colleagues, yeah. who faced risks mm. that I never yeah. faced myself. That's, and that's... so 
you know, when you ask what is it like to be kind of running around, say, on the 6th of April 2008, um, trying to report on this moment of violence in some cities, mm. this kind of enforced quietude in others, including Cairo, where there are guns at every corner. It felt incredibly strange and it mm. felt strangely thrilling. But also I experienced that very, very different sure. from my Egyptian reporter colleagues because with some exceptions that we can perhaps get into later, by and large, if you have white skin and a foreign passport, mm. the regime is certainly not going to yeah. treat you the way that it treats the vast majority mm. of Egyptians. And presumably you knew that at the time you had this sense that, like, there's danger, there is a lot of danger around. Like, there is, you know, this is not like being a foreign correspondent from... Well, like I know some people in Spain, for example, like they have some riots down yeah. there and they're like, I've seen police fire like bullet, plastic bullets. But really, yeah, it's like a nice holiday. That yeah. sort of foreign reporting, which is not we're not talking about here. But I mean, was your mum worried about you? Like, I mean, my mum was worried. <laughs> mum, who is uh, I don't think she'll listen to this much as the whole family loves cursed objects. So I, I'm not afraid to say Good. that she is a deeply anxious person. She 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 catastrophizes actually if you know we're driving down to Devon um, mm -hmm. for, for, for a long weekend. So yeah, when I you know when the revolution broke out, for example, and I was in the middle of a literal war zone, uh, and also all you know Egypt cut on the on the third day of the revolution, mm. the government cut internet access to the whole country. Yeah. Famously, it's one of the few times since the dawn of sort of the digital revolution that an entire country has become sort of Amazing. severed from the yeah, um, yeah. from the global sure internet right. network. It's fair to say that she was mildly, mildly stressed, I think. Um, but just just very quickly on, on your point about how did it feel, and this goes to the mug and to the cursedness of it, there was also a question I had to ask myself about where I stood politically and what I was aligning myself to, something that became all the more kind of urgent when the revolution kind of exploded into life. Mm. And I, as I say in my book, and as I always try and convey in my journalism... I wrote as a partisan. I wrote as mm. someone who supported the revolution, who um, never felt like I could stand aside from this, you know, political upheaval that was unfolding mm. around me. The historian Howard Zinn has the famous quote that, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And, you know, in Egypt in the late 2000s, and then certainly when the revolution <laughs> began in 2011, was a train yeah. that was barreling fucking yeah. fast yeah. and out of control, yeah. right? And, and the, the interesting thing about the mug, and we can, we can get into this in more detail, is, you know, I picked this up in the late 2000s, and it felt like this sort of thrillingly subversive thing mm. to have in my kitchen. Mm. So, you know, when I had friends round, when I had my morning cup of tea... I was in a slightly ironic way, mm. but also in a very genuine way saying, mm. I know whose side I'm on. Mm -hmm. Right. Then when Mubarak was toppled, um, stuff like this became kitsch in a glorious really? way. Of oh, course. How oh, you had revolutionary tat. You know, yeah. you could get you could get clocks and calendars and key rings inscribed with the faces of the martyrs. You know, there was wow. no there wow. was absolutely no um and this was a form of Revolutionary tat. Revolution, is brilliant. Revolutionary <laughs> tat is a fantastic uh, like genre yeah, of tat yeah, in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also really interesting, you know, we're not talking here about Che Guevara posters on a student's bedroom, you know, mm -hmm. 50 years after the fact. Right. We're talking about revolutionary tat as a kind of material product that is being produced and sold like in the course in that, of like yeah. revolutionary struggle. So to own it. It's both a kind of like ironic piece of kitsch, but it's yeah. also a statement of I'm I'm supporting this yeah. thing, right? And then when the counter-revolution fought back and ultimately, at least in the short term and where we're up to now, kind mm. of succeeded, you know, Egypt is is back in the hands of a of a, a military dictatorship that's far more brutal than anything that went before. This became dangerous. Mm. It went from thrilling and subversive to kitsch to potentially lethal. And it forced me to think about how I present myself as a journalist because having gone through those years in the run-up to the revolution and the revolution saying I'm mm. on the side of these people when the state then reasserts control and turns around and says right we're rounding up mm. all of the people mm. who try to overthrow us it's very difficult then to say I'm just a, I'm just a neutral yeah. journalist guys uh, here's my NUJ press card kind of leave me alone yeah. uh, and that's just one of the many contradictions that I think any journalist with a sort of political conscience has to yeah. has to navigate. Mm. 
it's a fascinating just journey that, as you said sort of earlier, those tectonic plates shifting mm. so rapidly as well. I love the, the, that this, idea this of mother's... time during a revolution mm. and how like the material culture reflects the way that time is experienced, like how that experience of time changes, yeah. that it goes mm. from existing and then to becoming heritage almost yeah. like instantly and then mm. becoming kind of like kitsch heritage and then being dangerous again yeah. really, really quickly. And that whole notion of time was so contested, and how you periodize events yeah. was mm. so contested was it? during the revolution and the counter-revolution. Huh. So the Tamantosha Yom, which is the 18 days, that was the sort of purest, like most distilled version of the revolution. Yeah. Those are the days from 25th of January when the revolution began up until the 11th of February, which is the day that Mubarak resigned, right? Mm. And so in a very simple kind of bookended way, it was easy to say, well, that was the revolution, and then the revolution succeeded. Mm. After Mubarak was toppled, a council of army generals took over who claimed to be acting in, this will be familiar to any students of history, uh, claimed to be acting in the interests of the revolution, mm -hmm. but were comprised entirely of the Ancien Regime and, yeah. and were all about limiting the revolution's impacts and ensuring that there could be a, a reshuffle of elite faces at the top without any fundamental kind of social, political, or crucially economic reforms. And so they very quickly tried to, uh, things have changed now, but they very quickly tried to celebrate and memorialise those 18 days really? in a way which said, and now they're over. And for revolutionaries, it became really, really critical mm. to reject that yeah. and actually to say, well, no, this whole framing of the 18 days as oh. the revolution mm. is in itself a counter-revolutionary act. Yeah. That's so interesting. So <laughs> many examples like that. So I'm so glad you brought yeah, up time yeah, yeah. Because, because, yeah, in a way, the, it, one of the many things that was being fought over in the Egyptian revolution was the concept of time and who gets to frame yeah. it. It's yeah, the idea yeah, that, like, yeah. fin finitude there mm. of, like, there being a tightly bound period of 18 days is itself counter-revolutionary. Yeah. You have They're this like... lot, yeah, you have this, um, I think he's called Berber Bevanage, wrote about uh, time in post-conflict spaces and how often the way that the past is packaged for us is that the past was evil and now the evil is past. So we don't have to engage <laughs> with that past anymore because yeah. it's now in the in the history books. So yeah. we move on and it's something different now. Simply by not yeah. being the same, we must be better because the old, yeah, yeah. what, yeah, what yeah, went yeah. before was, and yeah. Just because this feels very on brand for, for cursed objects and because you're a historian, Kasia, I, I should just mention at this point that this notion of Egyptian history more generally, this this yes. contest mm. over the, yes, over the hand frame of the revolution, yeah. it's fascinating because... I think for anyone who who wasn't engaged with the the uprisings in 2011 in the Arab world or hasn't followed the twists of turns in Egypt since, their association with Egypt, and we've already mentioned them once, is probably pyramids, pharaohs, mm -hmm. ancient Egypt. Mm. And there has been a constant struggle in post-colonial Egypt, mm -hmm. especially, mm -hmm. so going back to the 1950s, mm. over what Egyptian history consists yeah, of yeah. and how it's presented to the world. After the British were forced out in 1952, the, one of the first things Gamal Abdel Nasser did was go to the famous pharaonic temples at Abu Simbel and pose for this iconic shot mm. of him and his three officers outside these kind of this great example of pharaonic heritage, basically saying Egypt's history is back in the hands of yeah. the Egyptian people. Right um, after uh, after centuries of kind of mummies and obelisks and so mm -hmm. on being kind of looted and pillaged mm -hmm. by colonial forces, which is why you can find Cleopatra's needles Still in here, yeah. Paris and <laughs> London and so yeah. on. Nasser did that um, not because he was particularly interested in connecting Egyptians with their history, but because it was a way of building support for a very top-down mm. nationalist project. Mm. And what happened in the subsequent presidencies under Anwar Sadat and then Hosni Mubarak was that gradually that pharaonic history became a source of foreign income. It mm -hmm. was something to be commodified mm -hmm. and uh -huh. packaged up and sold to, to foreign tourists on this kind of conveyor belt of you come in, you stay in your four or five star Nile side hotel, you take your plexiglass, you know, minibus to the pyramids and to the Egyptian museum, you take your felucca down the Nile to Luxor mm -hmm. and then you fly back home. Mm -hmm. And the many kind of businessmen and magnates who were connected to this industry mm. grew rich and fat off, off it. Yeah. But anything that connected Egyptians to more modern and I would argue, more meaningful examples of nation building, mm. particularly the transition that 
Egypt went through in the early 19th century where the foundations of the modern Egyptian state were being built and people were moving from uh, subjects to citizens and building things like incipient democratic institutions mm-hmm. and kind of cultural institutions that were run by people rather than kind of from the, from, from, from the top down. That history was totally ignored wow. or mm-hmm. considered dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it was hard to commodify. It was yeah. hard to sell mm-hmm. that to foreign tourists. Mm-hmm. And also it, it raised questions about yeah. people having agency and autonomy, yeah. 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 right? And so, so not only were Egyptians locked out of that history, yeah. when it came to the commodified pharaonic history, mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. also seen as kind of interlopers and trespassers, yeah. Yeah. right? They, yeah. they literally built a different entrance for yeah. Egyptians to the pyramids, which is yeah. two and a half miles away from Am- the bloody yeah. pyramids, Amazing. right? Yeah. Amazing. Um, so yeah, that's just another, I think, interesting dimension well, to this. Well, so, well, no, it's a fascinating dimension. And in what ways were... So I'm, I'm sort of trying to think about like what I can remember of how the Bolsheviks in 1917 mm. did or didn't instrumentalise Russian history. Sorry. Cash was opening a beer. Um, <laughs> uh, first mentioned the Bolsheviks, <laughs> everyone's got to crack a beer open. Yeah, sure. fine. That's okay. I'll do the same. The um, <laughs> um, Salut. Uh, I can't remember what it is in Russian. Or, or Indian. Or, or in Arabic. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just carry on talking about the actual subject I had. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious today, Jack. So, you know, how was, uh, how was the, those alternative sort of sheltered or concealed Egyptian histories used or not used by the revolutionary movement or movements or groups? You know, there's a tendency to think of the Revolutionary Act as something that is creating a year zero. Yeah. Um, and there's a real, I think, variety, if you look across the kind of history of revolutions, as to whether people were invoking sort of some lost nirvana mm-hmm. in their own history or in a lot of cases go no we actually haven't got anything else to draw on so <laughs> yeah. this is you know like history starts today yeah essentially it's a great question one of the things i found most fascinating in the immediate aftermath of those 18 days so you know you basically had from early 2011 after mubarak fell until middle of 2013, when the current military dictator, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, took over, you basically had two, two and a half years of almost daily tumult and chaos. And it would take far too long to go through all the different milestones. You know, power at the top shifted between semi kind of revolutionary adjacent forces to the army and the military and the old regime, to the Islamists and the Muslim Mm. Brotherhood, who are a kind of third current in all of this, and at times seem to be allying themselves to revolutionary forces, and at Mm. other times seem to be allying themselves to the old state. But, you know, for the purposes of this conversation now, it was fucking chaos, right? (laughs) For for, for months on end. And in that period, how history was archived and Mm. presented Mm. became a site of kind of daily struggle. And... Just one example, um, there was a, a protest in a sit-in in, the, in November 2011. So we're, we're, you know, we're many months on from the mm. supposedly the closing kind of bookend of the sure, revolution yeah, now. Finished, yeah. um, and there was a, a huge sit-in outside uh, the Shura Council, one of the kind of organs of state in downtown Cairo, which the army, who are now in charge of the country, brutally stormed and aggressively attacked unarmed protesters and uh, in that whole period, kind of many, many people died, many people were injured, and, you know, literally thousands were arrested and forcibly disappeared. And in this particular sit-in, in this particular attack by the army, once it had happened, the state allied media said, nothing untoward happened here, and they made a, bit, a big deal of this on TV. They said uh, it was a few troublemakers, isolated incident, they went in, peacefully cleared it, job mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And an independent newspaper called At-Tahrir, um, and named after the square, right. which I'm sure you know means, means liberation, published this legendary front, front page featuring a photo of a female protester being dragged by a soldier so viciously along the floor that her clothes had kind of ridden up and you could see she was wearing kind of a blue bra and another soldier with his huge kind of jackboot stamping on her chest. And it had been caught by somebody up in an apartment block and they'd got this photo who had shared it with the revolutionary mm. newspaper. And they published this huge photo on the front page with the headline, Askar Kazaboun, the military are liars. The, the military immediately Ooh. tried to, to kind of round yeah. up all the copies of this yeah, newspaper. Yeah. But that gave birth to a movement called Kazaboun, liars, 
which was essentially like a grassroots popular history project wow. where people gathered footage of army atrocities overlaid it with official denials by the army wow. spokespeople oh, wow. that anything bad had happened created short videos that anyone could download mm. from the internet open mm. source completely accessible mm. And then played it in the streets. They would wow. project it onto the sides of walls. They would bring out laptops in Ahwas, the, the, the coffee shops, yeah. which are all over um, Egyptian towns and cities out in the street. And they would, and I would see this with my own eyes um, all the time, they would string bedsheets up between balconies, white bedsheets, and then tap into the, you know, illegally tap into the electricity network mm. from the lampposts to, to power the projectors. And wow. film and project these videos. Wow. And always when they did this, they knew that the clock was ticking and mm -hmm. that within usually a few minutes, wow. if they were lucky, kind of yeah. more like an hour, the security forces were going to move in and disperse them. So there was always a plan. You were going to mm. grab the projector. You're going to run that way. I'm going to wow. run this way. And it was popular contested history. Because, and public as well. And public. It's incredible. And, and, and for that reason, yeah. you know, the people yeah. who gathered and watched it weren't always supportive yeah. of, of mm -hmm. the act of showing it. They, why yeah. are you trying to give Egypt a bad name? Right. This must be... Because you had a state media mm. with all of the power and influence that that could muster mm -hmm. saying these guys are troublemakers. These guys are foreign agents. These guys are spies. These guys are trying to... All the usual, yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, that those kind of examples of, of, of contested kind of memorialization mm. were happening all the time. One last thing I'll say very quickly on this is the one thing the revolutionaries all agreed on and everybody um, understood was that the state's efforts to memorialize the revolution were dangerous and counter-revolutionary. Mm. And more than once, the regime, the military regime now, tried to put up um, incredibly crass monuments to the martyrs oh, wow. of the revolution in Tahrir Square as well as in other wow. places and as soon as they did that revolutionaries would attack and bring them down because they said you do not you do not memorialize That's, our revolution mm. wow you do not archive our revolution yeah. you do not celebrate our revolution our revolution is aimed at you yeah. That's incredible I mean we spend I think we spend a lot of time talking about sort of how political weight that underscores so many historical debates right mm. or the, the way that you know an argument over the way a series of events happened is always informed by the you know cultural mm. and political yeah. and you know sort of sensitivities or pr predilections of that particular historian or whatever it's so interesting to hear about an example where that that argument is happening in public all yeah. the time in so close so proximate like yeah. you said it's not 75 years later and someone is using this mm. in the way that you when know the risks are so palpable right yeah They're so yeah, immediate yeah. history yeah. right now right here of things that happened six months ago yeah. um are decisive in, in in sort of you know us working out the way forward the way we feel about our regime yeah yeah and you know what what i found really interesting is the role that journalists play in this mm. right and again you know we're not passive observers we're not neutral no. observers and mm. what we choose to report on um plays a huge role in 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 the way in which the egyptian revolution is presented to the world and one of the things that was really important to me was even as the 18 days um, of the anti-Mubarak uprising were unfolding, which were obviously concentrated on Tahrir Square and Cairo because it's the capital, it's where the biggest mm -hmm. occupation was, it's where the seat of government is, was that there was a danger of focusing everything on Tahrir and on Cairo, mm. not just because it could kind of play a role in the service of the regime in kind of corralling and bordering the revolution within this particular space and right. time, yeah. but also because it gave the opportunity for Western political leaders to, in a very safe and sanitized way, celebrate the revolution and congratulate the revolutionaries mm. on their incredible bravery, you mm. know. Because it was bounded, you think? Because Be it was bounded. Because they didn't have to speak to the, the, the factory that's in occupation. Precisely. Like All the farmers yeah. in the fields in the Nile Delta yeah. who were 
risking their lives mm. to, um, to, 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 to reimagine um, an agricultural system that had mm. been totally transformed by an IMF structural adjustment program throughout the 1990s and 2000s to move Egypt away from, I mean, I'm simplifying this a lot here, but an agricultural system which was much more gained at self-sufficiency and providing for the, the, the food needs of the Egyptian people mm. to being integrated with global capital mm. and producing largely crops for export. You know, Egypt is one of the biggest um, grain producers in the world it's also one of the biggest grain importers because it's so fucked it's yeah. incredible that's, that's simple, so a simple now way look, of saying it would be I'm, so not, I'm not big on economics <laughs> yeah. Jack, but that, that doesn't stack right, and, and, and right now at the time uh, when we're recording we know that there is a global grain crisis yeah. because of the situation in Ukraine Egypt is completely fucked because of that, despite right. it being the place where yeah. most of the grain is grown Jesus. because it's locked into these systems of, yeah. well, we're going to sell this here and we're going to import that there. Um, you know, there's a million examples I could give of, of productive fields being raised to the ground and turned over to producing patented types of grapes um, for like American multinationals. <sighs> Jesus. Land reform. When Gamal Abdel Nasser came in in, in, in the post-colonial era, he instituted some limited land reform, which mm. took land from the aristocratic feudal families and distributed it amongst peasants. Mm. Um, first to that, and then especially Mubarak, sponsored by the IMF and the World mm. Bank, reversed that. When you start thinking about the revolution as something that wasn't bound within 18 days or a particular square in a particular city, but as a revolt against a system of governance, mm -hmm. political and economic governance, mm. that stretches way beyond Egypt's borders, mm. about people collectively trying to uh, assert autonomy and agency over domains that had been um, they had been forced out of by a philosophy and an ideology which said, leave that to the market, we Absolutely. know best, the revolution starts to feel a lot more dangerous to yeah. people like Barack Obama, people like David Cameron, who, yeah. who supposedly celebrated mm. uh, the revolution. Cameron came a couple wow. of months after Mubarak fell, walked through Tahrir Square, uh, made a speech in which he said uh, the Egyptian revolution should be taught to um, school kids everywhere. Uh. Do you know why he was in the region? He was on an arms tour, including oh selling God. weapons to the Egyptian military, uh, the Egyptian military, which went on to massacre yeah, uh, the Muslim I mean, Brotherhood, right? Over, yeah. over yeah. a thousand people in yeah. one day in 2013. Um, so, yeah. Um, can I just footnote that? amazing and impassioned and educational particular sort of point you're making by sort of asking I think I know the answer but what's a good book for someone to read that isn't the Egyptians by Jack Schenker available from all the bookshops you have about because you should read no no really but I was going to say about this wider point about so like for people who haven't heard the words the immortal beautiful words IMF structural adjustment program before like it's like it's the most it's it's actually funny to me because it's the most like disgusting euphemistic language yeah. Yeah. but um is the shock doctrine a good um, place to go that's through for that? definitely your, yeah. the starting point right yeah. i mean you know obviously that book's a few years old now you know I, I think naomi klein has a way of not just relaying what can be sometimes kind of quite complex and academic and difficult kind of concepts and systems into language that people like me, ordinary people can yeah, understand, yeah, exactly. but also fusing it with human stories, which is yeah. uh, in a far less um, successful way I try and do in my own journalism. You know, I, I feel like telling telling human narratives, uh, connecting kind of little stories with yeah. big mm. stories and big yeah, ideas yeah. is, it's the kind of thing that I like to read to understand yeah, the yeah. world. So, and I think it can be the most powerful. And I think she does that really well. It's a good example, isn't it? Like, but yeah, joining the dots between the the sort of alienating words IMF structural adjustment program, yeah. or you know, like what does neoliberalism yeah. mean? Like we talk a lot about neoliberalism on this program, usually no. in the UK yeah, context. Yeah, yeah, it becomes like a bit of a catch-all term yeah. for anything that upsets yeah. people on the left, yeah. right? And like we we kind of take the piss out of that framing as well, right? On like on all sides. Yeah. But at the same time, like I think. You know, you speak about Naomi yeah. Klein's work really, really beautifully. Mm. And I also agree. But there is this section in your book where you kind of you chart that history of Egypt. And like, I've never really I kind of started reading your book because I was like, oh, I don't really know much about Egypt. But again, because all you know about Egypt is like pyramids and whatever. And I was like, you know, I was really interested in debates around museums, about repatriation of items to Egypt, especially when faced with quite a lot of people saying, actually, no, 
uh, Egypt doesn't want these items yeah. anymore. It's been so long. And you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is interesting. No, no, we've actually we... spoken to Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they I were like, uh, Egypt, about yeah, it. Egypt yeah. Yeah. said it's down. fine. Yeah. You hang on to that. Um, but, you know, also <laughs> narratives around the idea that, like, Egypt or, like, loads of, loads of countries like, that gained independence mm. aren't stable enough to, yeah. like, house their own cultural material. And I don't know, it's just really, there's just this moment in your book where you're explaining this kind of process of, it goes from colonialism to like post-colonialism or that kind of post-colonial moment, literally into this neoliberal model. And when I read it, it just blew my fucking mind. This is such a different way of thinking about how neoliberal structures, the world is invested in them and we are Mm. invested in them. Like the UK is invested in them so heavily. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to ever be spoken about at all. And the, the main like prevailing narrative often, I mean, it is on the left, right? But the main prevailing narrative is, okay, well, a lot of nations got their, got their independence. Why are there still problems? Are oh, there unstable governments? Oh, like, you know, this is like, you know, and on the reactionary right, people saying like, oh, this is why they need colonialism. Mm. They have colonialism, it's neocolonialism through neoliberalism, yeah. right? And it's all of those like joining of dots that when I was reading your book, I was like, Wow, this is so clear. It's so fucking clear. And then joining the dots of the, you know, the farmer whose field has been raised. Exactly. 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 That that human, you know, this this stuff shouldn't be alienating because it it involves ordinary people and their ordinary lives. Exactly that. And, you know, in the the years running up to the revolution, so, you know, basically the years after I first arrived in Cairo in the late 2000s up to 2011, the IMF called Egypt's reforms prudent, impressive, uh, bold. The World Bank said it was a shining example to mm. other countries um, mm. in the global south for how yeah. to modernise the economy. Forbes magazine famously published a feature, I can't, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like saying, you know, the, the daily Boeing 747 from Heathrow to Cairo International is filled every single day. All the seats are taken, but not by tourists wanting to stare upon the pyramids, but with businessmen with Samsonite suitcases uh, who are looking to get a piece of oh my this God. tiger on the Nile. With, you know, the US ambassador gave a, um, gave a <laughs> speech. Gold, gold rush to the Nile. Literally yeah. the oh, year before say. the revolution saying Egypt is stable, Egypt is open, and it's crying out for global investors oh to God. kind of pile in. And what is fascinating and perhaps kind of completely unsurprising is that that narrative has continued unabated Mm. since even Mm. as the revolutionary turmoil has kind of consumed the country the counter-revolution has murdered thousands Mm. forcibly disappeared tens of thousands imprisoned hundreds of thousands um robert zuelik who was the world bank president at the time of uh, the arab uprisings in 2011 gave a speech a few months later in which he said Mohammed Bouazizi, who you might remember was the Tunisian vegetable vendor who mm. uh, set himself on fire, yeah. which sparked the Tunisian revolution, which then helped inf- uh, kind of set off the chain of events, which included the Egyptian revolution. He said, you have to remember that Mohammed Bouazizi was basically protesting against red tape. And oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so, you know, if we just had more deregulation, um, opened up kind of markets for... I think That's what really he would have wanted. Yes, yeah. exactly. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's shameless. And oh only last uh, year, possibly the year before, Bloomberg called Egypt today under General Sisi, uh, one of the most brutal authoritarian countries in the world, an emergent market darling. So times change, but the language of neoliberalism very much stays. It's like low-key sexist as yeah. well. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the thing is that, like, you know, I'm not really... I don't really read much in terms of like the economics of other countries and like investment. I'm not an economist. I find that like super boring. I mean, I know it's going to surprise you that I don't subscribe to the Financial Times, <laughs> although they do some really good reporting at times. You know, these aren't things that I I'm not really engaged. Right. And it's just so striking to me how often I've read headlines like that and just not even thought. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's quite eye opening is that you just it just passes you by yeah. this language without you ever interrogating it's bo- it. i mean yeah the, it's literally ne- ne- like the water we swim in and the air we breathe yeah in. like yeah. like yeah. <laughs> yeah financialized capitalism is really complicated incredibly oh God, opaque and very boring this is it oh my at God. last it's the fun facts it's yeah. time to shine <laughs> this is great <laughs> 
think one of the things that immediately sort of resonated for me, even without, you know, being remotely expert in the subject matter, is this idea of, like, idealism dashed. And it's something mm. that for British leftists we've experienced quite recently in a much less brutal fashion, mm. <laughs> in a much more tame fashion. But that idea that the moment, you know, for me, like the student protests mm. and the anti-cuts movement of around the same time, actually, but again, much less repression going on, much less danger. But, like, there were moments there where you sort of feel the kind of molecules in the air around you almost being reconfigured and you feel your own politics kind of being transformed by the experience of everything's happening around you. It's something you capture so beautifully in the book, mm. you know, sort of particularly during those 18 days and, and during some of those occupations. Um, there's a line from a book about Occupy Wall Street, which always lives with me and is sort of, it's like a bit of a sucker punch to hear, but one of the Occupy Wall Street organisers reflecting on sort of what happened a year or so later, mm. sort of describes, she says, just because we failed, we shouldn't forget everything that happened in those moments where we felt like that hope was alive. That work of being together, working together, mm. politicking together, you know, like challenging the illegitimate power together, that work is socialism in the making mm. and it is the only socialism we will ever know. And that line at the end, you're just like, oh, wow. God, wow, really? Um, so, yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? But it's sort of, it's something I've referred back to a couple of times because she's trying to make a, a positive point, actually, which is that like that... We had a, we yeah, felt a... Well, yeah, exactly, that that feeling of working together towards yeah. this. Because socialism is like a thing that you make, right? Yeah. It's not just like a thing that appears suddenly. Yes. Like, it's all about the process. No one clicks their fingers, exactly. Socialism! <laughs> <laughs> um... And I suppose I, I just wanted to ask you to sort of reflect a bit on that, on, you know, it is a very emotionally sort of significant piece of China that you've yeah. got with us here. Um, you know, the it's it's quite a sombre question, but like what has happened to the the people who are involved in the April 6th movement? Like, is there a lot of horrible, like yeah. it's, it's a bad answer to that question, right? Um, no, the, 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 the founders of the 6th of April movement were, without exception, all jailed. Yeah. Um, uh, some of people associated with the movement are still in jail, others have uh, got out and are living in exile. Right. And the revolutionary um, movement in general, which takes a lot of different forms and has at times involved different social currents, like I say, the Islamist movement, which I felt less kind of woven in with and connected to, but absolutely involved millions upon millions of mm. um, people who try to remake their reality and yeah. challenge the power of, of an authoritarian state. Thousands were killed. They were mm. guns down mm. by weapons sold to Egypt by our governments in Europe yeah. and, and North America. Friends of mine are variously in jail under travel bans whereby they have been in jail and now they're released but they're not allowed to leave the country really? and yeah. live their lives under the constant suffocating shadow of knowing that they're almost certainly being followed they are almost mm. um, certainly being surve surveilled and yeah. that one full step will take them back into that mm. kind of mm. very dark very very grim place and others have withdrawn withdrawn to kind of bubbles of attempted normality whereby mm. they are doing ordinary things like raising kids and yeah. going to swimming classes twice a week and mm. commuting to work and they are doing so in this kind of fog of deliberate to protect their own mental health disassociation yeah. from the revolution and at the same time traversing each day the the ashes of the revolution yeah. um and you know i i was back in cairo last year so i left i mean this mug the reason it's here in london rather than cairo is because i packed up the flat that i lived in in downtown cairo since 2008 i um i finally gave that up and severed my ties with it in january 2020 so just before covid mm. and you know it had had the records of this whole period of my life you know my, yeah. kind of my whole 20s were there and so you know it was a real entwining of the personal and the professional and the political and it was filled with things like this mug that were once innocent or powerful in an exciting way and yeah. were now incredibly threatening so much so when it came to lots of documents including documents issued by the 
government, when it was run, short-lived by the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood is now a prescribed terrorist organisation, mm. yeah. where I was afraid to throw them out because in Cairo, you, the guy comes, the Zibela guy comes to your door to take your rubbish. It's not like you, you there's not a communal bin. Mm. I was terrified on his behalf that if he took these documents and someone saw them amongst his rubbish pile, he would potentially Jeez. end up in jail. So I spent the last night of my last night of my uh, time in my flat in Cairo setting fire to these documents no in the way. sink one by one and I was actually raided by the security forces whilst that was going on. What? Luckily they were so incompetent that they they managed to dredge up a um oh a packet of alpin um from the back of my cupboard demanding to know what that was <laughs> and a packet of condoms demanding to know what they were but missed all of the actually incriminating oh stuff that could have, um like, oh my God, this, is, this is but anyway and and it got broke uh, the, the the mug got broken in the uh, in the transit um, were you back burning to were you burning things when they walked through the door i'd i'd done most of the burning um, but the, the, there were bits of charred paper and kind of oh my god! because it turns out it's really hard in a sink to burn <laughs> lots of documents. Oh my god! But anyway, I, I, I digress. The, 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 the point is that uh, the remnants of the kind of the revolution and the counter-revolution are, are woven into the fabric kind of of the city. And when mm. I went back in November last year, which was the first time I'd been back since that January 2020, I found walking around downtown... Cairo especially, such a disorientating mm. and mm. like a headfuck kind of mm. experience because it felt like you were walking through the ruins of your, not to make it too narcissistic, but your own history. But that history mm. is a collective history, right? Mm. It's, it's a collective communal mm. struggle. And it's a story of, of as you say, kind of defeat. And, mm. and yet, can we... Can we summon kind of the, mm. the, the, the seeds of political possibility from within there? There's this great quote, I think it's Marshall Berman, who says, you know, we are, we are the children of ruins, but we are not yet ruined. And I think the best that can be said for many revolutionaries who were at the heart of that period of political upheaval in Egypt, there is a sense that the state may not have changed, but we change. We change psychologically. Mm -hmm. That paternal model of power whereby, you know, authority belongs in this citadel mm -hmm. and you can petition authority, like a child would petition a parent for mm. clemency or concessions, <laughs> but you can never demand anything as a citizen. Mm. That that model is fundamentally broken. Mm. The regime is trying to act and govern as if it's still in place, but that got shattered. Mm. That got shattered in January 2011. You know, most of the people I interviewed, um, I've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of people about their experiences during the Egyptian mm. revolution. And most of their stories actually begin not with tear gas and barricades and mm. setting the NDP, that's Mubarak's ruling party, setting the NDP headquarters on fire, which is what happened on the 28th of January and so on. It started with arguments with like their dad over the mm. dining room table mm. saying, I want to go down and join the protests. Mm -hmm. And the dad saying, absolutely not. Just, we're a respectable family. You know, you right. will not risk your life and bring shame on us. Mm. And so then people leaving uh, hastily scrawled notes on their bedroom door and climbing out the first floor window wow. and going down to join mm. the revolution anyway. It was a revolution that happened here. Um, and I'm clutching my, my chest as I, as I say that. Politically, I think there is a, a hope that if the Egyptian revolution has a parallel, it is with the revolutions in Europe in the 1840s, mm -hmm. which tried to overthrow a you know aristocratic, essentially mm -hmm. feudal kind of model of power and failed in, you know, politically in the short term, but arguably sowed the seeds for transformations which came later that century which did fundamentally kind mm -hmm. of reshape mm -hmm. Europe and authority mm. the status quo in Egypt is entirely unsustainable it cannot last the economy is tanking the brutal violence practiced by the state is kind of ramping up the contradictions are getting ever clearer the key thing to remember about the revolution is that it may be to some extent defeated on the ground but in the minds of egypt's ruling elite it is evergreen yeah. they wake up every day yeah. terrified of that mm. moment of mm. the loss of authority 
and that's the that's the hope I I hold on to. Mm. And and just in relation to your point about you know the early 2010s being a wider moment of political possibility, mm. of course mm. it would be facetious to directly compare you know people who are confronting bullets and tear gas every day with you know us camping outside St Paul's or, mm. or, or in Wall Street. But those moments were connected mm. and are connected mm. and are still connected. Mm. You know. In 2023, we are, even more than we were in 2010 and 2011, conscious that the economic and political systems we live under are literally unsustainable. Yes. I mean, literally mm. our planet is burning. Yeah. This cannot continue. Mm. And we do have, in our recent past, mm. these models and these historical memories of moments which felt like change was impossible, mm. you know, in which people rose up and won incredible, incredible mm. change. Mm. Reaching for the stars, like the Egyptian people did, I hold on to that, you know, and, mm. and that gives me a sense of political possibility and even optimism mm. in a way that I find really, really surprising, mm. um, but also like really, really essential. Mm. Um, and I think that that is as important sitting here in North London as mm. it is in downtown Cairo or in a field in the Nile Delta. Mm. Um, there's an academic called Adam Hanea who says the hope of the Arab uprisings is a hope that belongs to us all. Mm -hmm. And uh, if this cursed mug represents anything <laughs> at all that's vaguely optimistic, I hope Ooh. in a little way that it's that. Wow. <laughs> Jack, thank you so much. Wow. That was a, yeah. a wonderful way to end. Um, yeah. Really, yeah, really wonderful. I don't, I don't think we yeah. can add much more to it except to say thank you so much for coming in. It's been such a, a fascinating and inspiring and educational conversation. Yeah, thank you. Go, thank you go and get Jack's book, <laughs> The Egyptians. Um, Honestly, good. get it. It's just, <laughs> I don't know how many times this podcast I'm going to say it, but like, it's so rare to read something that really changes the way mm. that you see the world. And that book really changed the way that I see the world. Thank so, you guys so much like, for that lovely comment and also for the whole chat. It was really, really fun. And in fact, a lot more fun than I expected, especially given that I didn't get to talk about my 1994 contract. <laughs> next, next time. time. Next time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bye. Bye. Bye.